All right, praise the Lord. Good morning. You would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. It says, So Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed him. So his group here is the Jews that had believed in him. The rest were kind of critical of him and really didn't believe in him and were testing him and saying all kinds of negative things to him. But the ones who believed in him, he said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. So if you don't follow him and you're not his disciple, you're not going to know the truth. He says, you will know the truth, and it will make you free. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anybody. You hear this? They don't understand what he's saying about them no longer being slaves because they've never been enslaved. They're Abraham's children. said, where Abraham's descendants have never been enslaved to anyone, how is it that you say to us, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. What's that next word? Everyone who commits sin. Now, who in here has committed sin? Everyone who has committed sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask your anointing upon this message. Lord, I ask that you would allow your Lord, your Holy Spirit to speak through me today. Set me aside and speak your word, Lord. Speak Healing, speak strength, Lord God. Father, speak, Lord God, into lives, Lord God, strength that is beyond this world, Lord. Power, Lord God, that comes from your Holy Spirit. Do it in this place, Lord God, and those who are listening, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, I don't know exactly what... You know, sometimes when you're dealing with spiritual warfare and you're dealing with the gospel and you really, truly, um, I believe every time that I speak on Sunday morning, it's prophetic, which means that um, it's different than teaching where you teach off of a paper, you teach historical backgrounds, this kind of thing. Prophecy is actually hearing the heart of God and speaking it and speaking by the Holy Spirit what God wants us to hear for today. And so sometimes whenever I prepare a message, it's really simple. And I get that message really early, and I feel like God has led me, and I feel like God has given me the message. And I've learned over the years that I don't want to ever go behind a pulpit or behind a uh, whatever this is, (laughs) music stand. I don't want to ever go in front of people unless I've heard from the Lord. 
And so I will literally stay up all night until I've heard from the Lord. But it seems like lately it's been hard to hear that message. And I don't know if it's because God wants to clear out all the messages I might have or if it's just spiritual warfare. I really don't know what it is. But I've had several weeks where God has just told me to go to bed. Go to bed, set your alarm, and when you get up, um, you'll be a blank slate and I can give you what I want you to have. And um, so I went to bed, um, set my alarm to get up early, asked the Lord to clear my mind, don't put anything on my mind. I want your word and only your word. Make me a blank slate. And that's what God's had me praying lately. And I don't like it in a lot of ways. I like it because I want to hear the word of the Lord, but I don't like it because I like to have my notes in order. I like them to have them pre-written. I like them to be very organized. And my mind is totally about organization. And so I hate when God does this to me, really, in some ways. In some ways I love it because I want the word of the Lord. So I wake up this morning and I say, okay, what is it? And, and, And lately God's been giving me the word before my foot even hits the ground. And so the Lord told me this morning, no longer a slave. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. And I said, Lord, no. Not that message. We've got riots across our country over the issue of slavery, and I'm preaching a message called no longer a slave. But this is what the Lord wants. And Jesus is speaking to a group of people who believe themselves not to be enslaved. These are Jewish men who became believers in the Messiah that they had been waiting for for a very long time, and they were believers. And he says, if you continue in me and my teachings, you'll no longer be a slave. And that confused them. They said to themselves, well, what's he talking about? Because we're not slaves. We're free. We've never been in slavery. What's he talking about? And they were genuinely curious about what he was talking about. And so Jesus made a very radical statement that anybody who has ever sinned is enslaved to sin. And so when you're enslaved, you have to think about what that means. That means that you don't have freedom to do what you or God wants you to do in your life. You're enslaved. You must do what sin tells you to do, and you have no ability to do any other. And Jesus is saying that my words, the words that I speak, the life that I live, the spirit that I'll give you, you'll no longer be a slave if you follow in them. That means they were still enslaved at the moment they believed. But he said, if you continue in my word, you'll no longer be a slave. That I'm going to teach you how to not live in the slavery of sin. And so this freedom that God is giving us is above any freedom the world has ever spoken of. In fact, there are all kinds of freedom fighters in the world, but this is a freedom that's well above any freedom fighter the world has ever seen. And so I want to expand on what Jesus is talking about in this passage. In fact, some people um, would consider it to be slavery to be a Christian. I mean, know that. 
There's some people like uh, one famous writer, uh, Augustine, wrote a book called The Confessions of Augustine. And one of the things that he said in that book was he did not like Christianity. He wanted to have freedom to do what he wanted to do. He wanted no rules. He wanted no regulations. He wanted to go out and do everything. He wanted the world to kind of be his oyster, right? Well, that's an odd term. But he wanted everything the world had to offer, and he considered God and Christianity and religion to be bondage. And so he went out and lived a wild, excessive life, and the confessions of Augustine are actually him saying, I finally realized that only in Christ do you actually have true freedom and rest. And he was quoted as saying, Our heart is restless until it finally finds rest in you, Lord. And so Jesus is talking about real freedom, and that real freedom evidently isn't brought by religion. That freedom isn't brought by freedom to sin. How many, how many know some people think Christianity is, I now have a freedom to sin. And I want to go somewhere where they will let me sin because I want true freedom, and that's freedom to do what I want to do. And what Jesus is saying is, you're enslaved to sin. I want to teach you how to be free from the power of sin because it keeps taking you captive. And so Jesus begins to offer true freedom. And I want you to begin to think about what true freedom means because true freedom and true bondage is different in every situation. In fact, if you do a history of slavery, you'll begin to understand from the very beginning Um, way, way back in the time of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and, and, uh, you get into, um, the Persians, you get into the Grecians and Greece, you get Rome, uh, you begin up to even the present day and you see that there are all kinds of different forms and different ways that people have been enslaved physically over the years. And, Jesus isn't exactly talking about the institution of slavery. He's talking about chains that are bondage for us of sin that we can't get out of. And so it would be really easy to understand spiritual bondage if you were to look um, at a heroin addict. How many know that's a chain? If you're addicted to heroin and you hear that there is freedom from heroin, those chains, how many think that that would be an exciting uh, thing that Jesus is saying? If you knew that there were freedom from alcohol and you're an alcoholic, how many know that would be an exciting uh, thing that Jesus is saying? Freedom. And sometimes we recognize those chains. We recognize alcohol. We recognize drugs. We recognize uh, certain bondages that people have. And we say to ourselves, it makes total sense. And man, this freedom is really exciting. But sometimes we don't recognize um, other ways that we're bound. We don't understand other ways that sin has us bound and we have no freedom to do what's right. 
And so Jesus begins to um, talk to the people of his day. So when Jesus talks about freedom and he's talking to the people in his day, what do they hear? And you've got to put yourself in their position. When Jesus said that they were slaves, and anybody who sinned is a slave to sin, the people in that day, what are they thinking? Because in their day, how many know, and, I've, and, and there's, I think they say five out of every eight individuals in the Roman Empire were slaves. How many know that? And so there was a large percentage that was in some form of slavery, and there was lots of variety in the Roman Empire. And you say, well, how can that be? It's because of conquest, mostly. In fact, when you conquer another nation, you don't have very many choices in what to do with them. Either leave all their powerful there, and they can, uh, they can come back at you with another um, uh, revolt, and they can win back their territory. Or you can kill all of them, which is, you know, most people would look and say, man, I don't know, that's not a good thing to do to kill all of them. And then another way you can do it is you can diminish their power by enslaving them. So the Romans, how many know they conquered a lot of the known world at that time? It's the Roman Empire. Same thing with the Persian Empire, same thing with the Grecian Empire. Uh, when you have conquest um, as part of um, a culture, you're going to have slavery because of conquest. And so Jesus is talking to them, and some of them, all they hear is political freedom. They're looking at Jesus, and they're saying to themselves, finally, Jesus has come, and he's going to free us from Roman oppression. And so they believe Jesus is going to be a political leader. In fact, you can read the New Testament, and even up till the time that he allowed himself to be executed by the Jews and the Romans, they still believed he was going to free them from political uh, bondage. And so they're thinking it's a political revolution. Uh, They think it has to do with something outward that he's going to do, that it's going to be a revolution against the Roman government. But Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus is going about freeing people and, and a lot of people don't even recognize what he's doing. They don't see the method that Jesus is using to free people from bondage. Bigger bondage than the Romans, bigger bondage than the Babylonians, bigger bondage than any slavery we've ever had in this country. Jesus is freeing people. And one of the ones that steps onto the stage is somebody by the name of Saul, who would later be called Paul. And you say, well, man, what bondage does Paul have? And this is what I'm saying. Every bondage is different with every person. And Paul clearly has what we would call legalistic bondage. He has religious bondage. In fact, Saul, as he was called at that time, had been raised in a Jewish strict home, had been trained by the best scholars, was religiously above anybody probably in his day. He was at the very top. And the Bible says, Jesus said there will be people that will come that will kill you and think they're doing God a service. I mean, no, that's true. Religion can get so ugly and be such a cesspool that they will kill you and believe they're doing God's work. How many know that happens in the world? And so Paul was in bondage. Paul was a slave to his religion. How many know that? Jesus met Paul 
Paul was actually going around the territory killing Christians. How many know that? He was in bondage. There was something inside of him. There was a hatred. There was a bitterness. There was an anger. There was a fury. He got papers and he was looking for Christians and he was actually responsible for trying to wipe out this sect while he was trying to protect his religion. How many know that? Jesus gave freedom from all that bitterness, all that anger, all that religion that was in Paul's heart. How many know freedom meant for Paul freedom from legalism and religion? Then he runs into two brothers named James and John. You say, oh man, I love James. Such a soft-hearted man, loved the Lord, kind-hearted. You read his work and how much he was loved in the early church. And you say, man, what a wonderful guy. And John, youngest of the apostles. Man, John's so tender-hearted. His book is all about love, right? Writes the book of Revelation, uh, Isle of Patmos, you know, just a very kind-hearted person. How many know that when Jesus met them, they were called James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder? They were the sons of thunder. They were zealots. Zealots were a group of people that felt like the government was against them. The government was Roman. The government was oppressive. The government was not Christian. The government was wicked. The government was bad. And we believe as a group of people that God is going to institute a righteous government and we're opposed to the government. We want to see it overthrown. And they were so happy to see Jesus because he looked like the one that would help the zealots overthrow the government. And their energy was put into overthrowing the Roman government. But then they met Jesus. Jesus shifted the thinking. Jesus met the sons of thunder and he began to transform their heart. And now no longer did they want to overthrow the government. They wanted to overthrow oppression in men's hearts. They wanted to change people's hearts, not change the government. Then he met a girl by the name of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene evidently had some money because there were a group of women that followed Jesus around as his disciples. And, but she also had another thing that was kind of interesting. She had seven demons. So Jesus, freedom to Mary Magdalene meant that he was going to cast demons out of her heart and give her freedom from oppression of demons. Do you see how Jesus is changing hearts? He's changed Paul's heart. Somebody's no longer murderous toward Christians. He's the most unlikely person to become the apostle to the Gentiles. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you know that. But Jesus took his slavery of bitterness and anger and it was gone. James and John had an encounter with Jesus. No longer were they anti-government zealots fighting the government. Now they're fighting the oppression of men's hearts and freeing people from the oppression of Satan. Do you see the problems there are with all of their focus? I mean, if your whole focus is overthrowing the government, how many people are you going to ever win to the Lord? If your whole focus is to have people... Worship like you worship? 
Is your focus ever going to be on changing hearts and changing people? Mary Magdalene didn't have a chance. What would a political transformation do for Mary Magdalene who had seven demons? Nothing. Nothing at all. What would the purification of the Jewish religion of Saul do for Mary Magdalene? Nothing at all. She was suffering from oppression from demons. Matthew. Man, what did Matthew need? Matthew was a tax collector. He had a lot of money. In fact, they they think the very large house where Jesus uh, had all the tax collectors come from for, to, for Matthew when he became converted was Matthew's house, and he probably had a lot of money. And he was probably very successful, and he was probably one of the elites of that day. But Matthew, uh, freedom for him meant freedom from greed and freedom from success. You know, some of the most miserable people in the world have the greatest jobs. They're lawyers, they're doctors. They have success, and they believe that their life is wonderful. And Jesus, freedom for Matthew meant freedom from the guilt, the wealth, the lifestyle that I'm living. All the guilt that he had, Jesus took it away and gave him real freedom. So whoever you met, Jesus gave freedom. And so for a lot of people that are here, I know for me, I want you to begin to think, what did freedom mean to you? Because I know what it meant to me. I know that I felt like there was a lot of injustice in my life. I felt like there were a lot of things that happened to me that didn't happen to anybody else. How many ever felt that way? I felt like there was bitterness in me, and I was ready to just explode before I met the Lord. In fact, I was angry, I was bitter, I wanted to fight everybody. I was full of rage, I was full of bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, and I was ready. I just had enough of it. I mean, it had ever been there. And so sometimes freedom for some people means hatred being eradicated. Some of it means greed, some of it means racism, some mean it means insecurity, despair, depression, poverty, doubt, anger, bitterness, legalism. All these categories... Jesus Christ came to give freedom. And right now we have, in fact, if you read the news and you begin to uh, see protests in the streets and people saying, hey, we need to change this and we need to change that. We need to change the government. We need to change you know, how this person treats that person, that person treats this person. You see white people bowing to, to, to those of color, those of color bowing to... Those who, you know, are white and, and, and they're saying, well, black lives matter, that's the answer. Uh, why, all lives matter, that's the answer. And, uh, and I just look at both and they say, pick a side. And can I be honest with you? I refuse to pick a side. Because everything inside of me says that bowing my knee to God is the answer. Not bowing my knee knee to a race, because God made us all one race. And Jesus Christ has called us to freedom, but what does the freedom mean? Galatians 4.1 says this, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. 
but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. So also we, when we were children, were held in bondage to the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, so we might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, and we cry to him, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer slaves, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. However, at this time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, and rather you are known by God. How is it that you are turning back to weakless, weak, weak and worthless things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? The Galatians had believed in Jesus Christ, and because they believed in Jesus Christ, they were no longer slaves. They became sons of the living God. And how did they go back again to the old way of being slaves again to sin? Well, the Bible says that a group of Judaizers, those who wanted them to be religious, came back into the town And they said, you need to go back to the way you used to live. And so by doing that, they went back to a religious lifestyle when God had brought them into freedom. And church, can I tell you something? This spoke to me this morning. Because there are a lot of people in the church that are going back to these old ideas of race. Going back to these old ideals of racism hatred, bitterness, picking sides, divisive factions, divisions, all of these things. And God hasn't called us to those arguments. God's called us to be children of the living God. God's called us to serve. In fact, as you go through for, uh, you go through Galatians, you get to Galatians 5. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by their yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you, don't let yourselves Uh, be of that group of the circumcision. It has no value at all. I declare every man uh, not to allow himself to be circumcised. He is not obligated to obey the law. You were trying to be justified by the law. You're being alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, let me go down here. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. This is where God called us. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. Will you not also be destroyed by each other? So Paul's trying to tell them, now their particular bondage that they went into is what? Legalism. The same thing that Paul went back, back to religion. And God said, I didn't call you to religion. I called you to have freedom from sin. Why did I call you? It was for freedom that I called you. What do you want me to do with my freedom? He said very clearly, now that you're free from the power of sin, 
Now you can serve your neighbor. Now you can love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jesus, let me ask you a question. If I'm black and I feel like seeds of racism have always been in my heart and I'm angry at white people, right? And he tells me I need to serve a white man? I need to serve my neighbor as myself? Or if I'm white and I feel like they've not been fair in their treatment of me and there's been seeds of racism that have been planted and God's telling me to serve the black man? And see, we've already messed up. Nowhere in there did that say, serve a white man or serve a black man. Nowhere did it say that. That's racism. That's racism from both sides. That's from a black supremacist point of view. That's from a white supremacist point of view. Jesus says, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither man nor woman. And so what God wants to do is God wants to go to the very roots of of sin and give us freedom, complete freedom. And you know what? If a, if, if a person serves other people, and it doesn't matter if they're black, it doesn't matter if they're white, it doesn't matter if they're Indian, it doesn't matter if they're Chinese, you say, well, wait a minute, Chinese. And that zealot part of it comes up in your heart and you say, oh, no, i got to protect myself. Or if they're, they're black, oh, no, i gotta, I got to protect myself. Or if they're white, oh no, i got to protect myself. And what God's trying to do is take the whole sin thing out of it and make you love your neighbor as yourself. Forget about the fact, it doesn't matter if he's black or white or Native American or whatever. God wants to take that whole mess and set us free from it. He doesn't want you to enhance this race war. In fact, how many know that, and I'm not going to say that I... that I disagree with all lives matter. I disagree with all black lives matter. I'm I'm not going to say I disagree with any of them. You know why? Because there's some people in black lives matter that legitimately think, they, they legitimately feel pain. They feel hurt. And then the spectrum goes all the way up to other people who really don't even care. They want political change. They want social change. They want uh, changes that have nothing to do with race, have everything to do with destroying capitalism. So you have a whole realm, and I don't want to offend one by saying that they all have nothing to say that's valuable. All lives matter. I totally understand. There are a lot of people that feel like racism is being put at their feet, and they've lived a whole life of never being racist, never had a privilege um, to speak about, and, and, and they love everybody, and they're wondering why you're saying I need to apologize. I totally understand that. And then there are people in the All Lives Matter movement that really don't care about uh, treating people well. They want to be harsh to people. So there's variety in all. I'm not going to sit here and say one's right, one's wrong. What I am going to say is neither of them are going to end in healing. The only thing that's going to end in healing is the freedom that comes in Christ Jesus, bowing your knee to God and loving your neighbor as yourself because you no longer have roots and seeds of racism inside of you. Hallelujah. And as I begin to go through here, one of the books that I find very fascinating, and you say, well, Chad, um, you you should be trying to change the structure of everything instead of just trying to change people's hearts. 
And one of the books that I really, I, I love this book. I, I just love the book of Philemon. You say, what's that? I, I pronounce his name Philemon. Okay, some of you say Philemon, I say Philemon. But the book of Philemon is a very short book. And it's written by Paul. And it's one of his prison letters. And I, and I love that. How many think it's pretty cool that Paul has prison letters? I mean, he's got some real credibility on the street because Paul's got prison letters, right? And so Paul's writing this prison letter uh, to a person named Philemon who lives in Colossae. So when they deliver this uh, letter, Philemon, they, and they deliver the letter to the Colossians at the same time because this guy was a part of the church in Colossae. Now remember, this empire had five out of eight people were slaves in the Roman Empire. And Paul could have spent all of his time fighting the Roman Empire and fighting the institution that is called slavery. Now I want you to imagine if Paul is in prison and he spends all his time in prison as an activist trying to change a system of wicked men that probably he would have very little success in changing. But Paul is in prison with a guy by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus is a very fascinating person. He's the slave of this Christian named Philemon. And so Philemon, when Paul was in the area of Colossae, he led Philemon and a bunch of believers to the Lord, okay? And then Paul left, got arrested, is in prison in his first prison stint in Rome. And Paul ends up in prison with a runaway slave named Onesimus, who just happens to be um, Philemon's slave that lived in Colossae that Paul also led to the Lord. So Paul leads this runaway slave to the Lord. In fact, him and Onesimus become really good friends. Now, a lot of people don't realize that the penalty for a runaway slave in the Roman culture was death. And so Paul and Onesimus, I wish I could have sat in that prison and watched Paul lead him to the Lord. I wish I could have been in that prison to hear all the conversations they had because by the time they came out of prison, Paul is actually sending his friend Tychicus and Onesimus to deliver the letters to Philemon. They say, well, that's not that big of a deal. The reason it's a big deal is because Paul sent a letter. He said, I could command you, Philemon, to release him, but I would rather do it in love and you do it of your own goodwill. And he said, but take Onesimus, not back as a bondservant. Take him back as our brother in Christ. You say, well, that's not big, that big of a deal. But do you know by Paul writing that letter, he was showing how slavery would be eradicated in every nation. In fact, he went back, Onesimus, and he said, receive him as your brother. And you say, well, man, why didn't he just go against the Roman authorities and try to change the institution? Because Paul changed the heart of a slave owner and a slave. He led them both to the Lord and then had him receive him back in love. And how many know everywhere the Christian spirit of Christ has taken root, slavery has been eradicated? Because he changes hearts. And you say, well, man, how is God going to change the hearts of people that have all this anger? And I was reading a, um, there's a book that I have, 
In fact, I forgot to grab it before I left, so I had to download on my phone. But several years ago, I was driving by a bookstore and randomly picked up a book by, by the, the guy who wrote its name is Johann Christopher Arnold, and I don't even know who the guy is. still don't know who he is. Uh, but he wrote a book called Why Forgive, and it became one of my very favorite books. In fact, I read it all the time. I'll go back and reread it because uh, my heart was full of hate and anger and bitterness and rage, and everything that was bad was in my heart as a young man. And this book was one of the books that really helped me learn to love, learn to forgive, learn to not be bitter and angry. And uh, he has a chapter in there called Ending the Cycle of Hatred. And um, I just want you to listen to how God takes hatred and bitterness and all these negative things and begins to change the world one heart at a time. But It says, if only, this is a quote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. How many would like that? If there were an evil group of people we could just destroy, get rid of them, and then we wouldn't have evil in the world, right? It says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Recited by millions from childhood on, the Lord's Prayer includes the plea, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Familiar as it is, I often wonder whether we really mean what we say or we just repeat the words. Whether we sufficiently consider their meaning, to me at least, they imply that once we recognize our own need for forgiveness, we are then able to forgive. This recognition does not come to most of us easily, because it demands humility, but isn't humility the essence of forgiveness? So what he's saying is, in order to properly forgive somebody else, you have to understand the depth of your own sin in your own heart. And that requires humility. And so he goes on and he tells a story. He said, Jared, an African-American student from Boston, says that that was definitely the case with him. He said, I was six years old, when I woke to the reality of racism from the sheltered environment of my home. I was pulled out into the world, a local primary school just down the road from our house. I went there for one month before city law mandated that I be bused across town to another school. My parents were not happy with this. They wanted me to go to a school where I was known and loved. They owned a farm out in the country, and so we moved there. My father, a veteran of the civil rights movement, taught me to love and respect everyone, white or black. They tried to teach me not to see everything in life along racial lines. All the same, I was the only black child in the new school. Many of the other children had obviously been taught to hate. Children can be brutal about each other's differences. They may begin with an innocent question, why is your skin brown? But then they start to laugh at you and mock you. Because somewhere along the line, they have been taught that if you're different or not normal, there's something wrong with you. I was a fish out of water, and these kids didn't make it easy for me. I'll never forget one especially painful incident. I introduced one of my white friends to another white kid on the bus one day, and from then on, um, they always sat together but left me out. Later, I moved to a different school, and by the time I was 12, the tables had turned completely. 
Our class was now all black, except for one white guy in my class. Sean, who was the only white kid in the white school, or in the only white kid in the whole school, we treated him as an outcast, taunted him with racial epithets, and physically abused him. We took out our hatred of white people on him, even though he hadn't done anything to harm any of us. We were angry. Sean symbolized everything that we knew about whites and their history. The humiliation of our people, the lynchings, the mobs, the slave trade, we took it out, all of our bitterness and anger on him. I was never able to apologize to Sean. By the time I saw racism for what it was, we had parted ways. But I had asked God to forgive me for the harm that I caused him, and I resolved to forgive the guys who didn't have a heart for me when I was the only black kid in their midst. Does everybody see how this cycle of hatred just continues forward? And here's another one. I know I'm reading a lot, but I'd rather read people's stories. Kayla Elric was a, a Jewish friend, has a similar story. She grew up in Nazi Germany, and though her immediate family escaped the death camps by immigrating just before the outbreak of World War II, her grandparents on both sides and all her childhood friends lost their lives in the Holocaust. Now imagine this. You narrowly escape, but your grandparents and all your friends die in the Holocaust. Do you think you'd be a little bitter? I think so. For many people, the passage of time softens heartache, but for her, the opposite was true. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, her hurt turned into bitterness, her pain into anger. Hila did not want to be bitter. She wanted to be free and to live in love. In fact, she struggled constantly to keep from listening to her heart. But she could not forgive. Then one day it dawned on her. She, could ne- she would never be able to forgive her family's executioners until she was able to see that despite their guilt, they were still fellow human beings. Trembling, I realized that I looked into my own heart and I found the seeds of hatred that I had for them. Arrogant thoughts, feelings of irritation toward others, coldness, anger, envy, and indifference. These are the roots of what happened to me in Nazi Germany. How many of you recognize that? Did you say did you notice she had indifference there? One of the roots she had from Nazi Germany was indifference. That means I don't care. Let them do what they want. I don't like them. I don't want to be around them. I don't care. How many of you know that we have roots and this cycle is just playing over and over and over again? And sometimes in society, we try to get the upper hand on one group. One group gets the upper hand for a while. Another group gets the upper hand for a while. One uh, political organization is above the other. One system of uh, government is over another. And, and what we have is a cycle and there's never really ever true freedom or healing. And what God wants to do is, Jesus said, if you follow me and you walk in the things I'm telling you, you will have true freedom. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. You want to be free from racism? Maybe you ought to acknowledge the cesspool that is in your heart. You say, good, tell those white people. Make sure all the white people know that they're a cesspool. If you're white, if you're black, if you're Mexican, if you're Asian, it doesn't matter what you are, we are a cesspool without God. 
And all of us need to look in our hearts and we need to recognize that we're all in slavery to all these. In fact, Galatians 5, the whole purpose of God, writing Galatians 5, is to learn how to live in freedom. And he says if we remain bound to sin, it says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many think the last half of that sounds a lot like our streets in America right now? And what the Lord is saying, and I love, and and I'll close with this, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you begin to see the emergence of freedom. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me turn there. Paul talks about this um, battle that rages inside of us. The battle for the flesh, which is where all these ugly attitudes come from. I mean, oh. The flesh is where all the ugly attitudes come from. There's some people trying to agitate us and get it to come out of us. But the rage, dissensions, factions, hatred, discord, all these things come out of this flesh that we are, this cesspool that is our heart. And the Bible says, the reason I've set you free is because I want to create me in you. I want to set you free to be like me. I want to set you free to be like Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the glorious message that we will not always be like this. In fact, we're just like this ugly little caterpillar. How many have ever watched a caterpillar you know, wrap itself up in a cocoon and then you begin to see that process where it begins to bust out of the cocoon, and all that dead old body just dies off, and eventually it's gone. And that's the picture that we see in 1 Corinthians 15, because while we're on this earth, our spirit will fight to have love, joy, peace, all those things the spirit wants to manifest. In fact, he set us free to bear fruit of love, joy, peace, all those things that God wants us to have that are good. He wants the spirit to produce in us, and that's what he wants us to be, all the things that are bad, the flesh. How many know it's still there and we got to fight it? But in 1 Corinthians 15, we see the old completely fall off. What is it like when you're finally fully free? What's it like when there's no longer a sinful nature? What's it like when there's no longer hatred and discord? And church, I want to be there in that day. I want to be in the day when God's Spirit so fully has made me a new person that all of the old is completely gone. And there's no sinful nature that is fighting. And this is the picture in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read it before I walk away again. Look at verse 42. It says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power, is sown a natural body. It will be raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, First man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spirit did not come first, the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was the dust of the earth. The second man 
was from heaven. As was the earthly man, so it, those who are of the earth, and as man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we are born in the likeness of an earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man who is from heaven. I declare to you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and perishable will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself in the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, mortal with immortality, then the saying that it is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Hallelujah. Do you see it, church? Do you see that we're wrapped up right now in a cocoon, and there's a life-giving spirit inside of us, and that life-giving spirit has been designed to bear fruit in this world, but there's going to come a day when all of the old is going to fall off, and finally that butterfly is going to bust its way right through the cocoon, and one day there will be no hatred, there will be no discord, there will be none of those things, and God wants Heaven to be on earth right now. And He wants to do it through us. He wants us to change hearts once at a time. He doesn't want to change it with all lives matter. He doesn't want to change it with black lives matter. He wants to change it with bowing our knee to God and treating our neighbor as ourself and colors shouldn't even be a part of it. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. And the reason why I will not support either, if you look in the streets and you see hatred and discord and anger, you can bet it's not of the Lord. You can bet it's not of the Lord. Hatred, discord, anger, riots, protests, that anger is not of the Lord. Now, are there legitimate things that we need to love and respect and we need to change things if they're wrong? Absolutely, but... The fighting and the riots and the protests, that's not from the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you, Lord. Lord, I pray right now peace over my brothers and my sisters, Lord. Lord, I won't pray a prayer of color, Lord God, because those are artificial. They're not real, Lord God. They're from the pit of Satan the division that is stirred up by him. Lord, you said you made all men of one blood, Lord. Lord, you died for all men, Lord. Lord, I pray right now that you would um, speak to hearts, Lord God, freedom. Freedom from pain, freedom from bitterness, freedom from anger. Lord, freedom from discord. Lord, I pray that you would change hearts, Lord God. Lord, that you would replace all that fear and anger with peace and joy and love. All of the fruit that the Spirit desires, Lord God, in all of us. I pray these things in your mighty name. And Church, I would just ask you, lay... You know, crucify the flesh, the Bible says. If there's anything in you that makes you think less of your neighbor, 
and you can't love your neighbor, even the ones that hurt you. How many know we're called to love the ones that hurt us, the ones that persecute us, the ones that have done despitefully bad things to us? And if that's not you today, God wants you to lay all that down and pick up Christ. Lay it down, pick up Christ. Lay it down and say, God, I want to love everybody. In fact, challenge yourself. I want to love the ones that hate me. I may have a hard time doing that. It's like, I know that person doesn't like me, and so I'm going to treat them with indifference, right? Cold shoulder. How many have ever treated somebody with a cold shoulder? That's part of the slaving. That's enslaving of sin. Because God called you to love that person and you're giving them a cold shoulder. Uh, How many have ever said, I'm just going to stay out of it, let them do what they want to do? Well, you wouldn't do that if that were your child. You'd love them. And so I'm asking you today, do it at your seat, do it at this altar. We're going to play some worship. I want you to lay it down and pick up Christ and say, man, I want to be like Christ in everything that I do today. I'm going to love protesters. You say, yeah, I will, but I will not love Antifa. Now, is that, what I'm, is that what I'm preaching today? You should love them too. Unless you want to continue a cycle of hatred, I'm going to love them too. I'm going to pray for them. How many here prayed for your president, Barack Obama? All right, we pray for Barack Obama. We pray for Bill Clinton. We pray for Donald Trump. We pray for George Bush. I mean, you know that. You know who put those four in office? Unless you read a different Bible than I do, God put them there. And if I'm not praying for them, then I'm being selective of Bible verses. We pray for our leaders. We support our leaders. You say, well, what if they do something that's not biblical? We pray even more. We pray about those things. Oh, no, shouldn't I just slander them? slander them and make it hard for no no pray because they're not doing something that's biblical that's how you do it you pray and you love them love them enough to pray for them. maybe even I mean, let, me, let me say this this is revolutionary maybe even fast you mean fast for barack obama yeah fast for barack obama that's praying for your president let me think we should be doing that I mean, I think we shouldn't be caught up in factions and arguments and debates. and We should be praying people and loving people, not like the sons of thunder trying to change the government. We should be trying to change hearts. Our energy should be in, in hearts. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Spirit. This means if you have freedom from sin and you're free to do what God wants you to do, the fruit of the Spirit will grow and the world will receive that fruit of the Lord. If you don't, it'll be choked out. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their sinful nature. Let me challenge you this week. When somebody online or somebody in your life tries to work you up and get you upset, one says all lives matter, one says black lives matter, one says this, one says that. Try to see how many fruit can come out of your mouth. Patience, love, joy, peace, self-control. Let me ask you, any of those conversations at any point, did you tell them that I love you, that I care about you, that I want to see God's best for your life, or did we just argue politics? And so let's, let's try to refocus Not on the arguments of the day, but on the God wants to change everybody's heart. God loves everybody. God wants to save everybody. And we've got a short amount of time. We can't be distracted, church. We got to love our neighbor as ourselves, and it doesn't matter what religion they are, it doesn't matter what nationality they are. We got to love them because time's running out. And we don't have time to be in these debates. We need to love our neighbors, like Jesus said, and be free from the sinful nature. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, right now, anoint your church to bear fruit, Lord God. Fruit of the Spirit, Lord God. Real fruit that changes hearts, Lord God. And by changing hearts, it changes the whole world, Lord God. It changes people's opinions by that love, Lord by that peace, by that joy, by those fruits that you give us, Lord God, for the world to enjoy, Lord. Bless your people, Lord. Strengthen them. Give them wisdom and guidance, Lord. Oh, Holy Spirit, do a mighty work in every heart. In your name I pray. And everybody said, 